This is Wrestling with your host, Isaac Scanlon. Joining me for this episode of Wrestling is attorney Anthony Bushnell. Hear Anthony describe how he went from a normal, godly man to a dirty attorney. Obviously, joking, rather lamely there. In all seriousness, as Anthony describes his law career, we wrestle with the concept of biblical justice, the purpose of the criminal justice system, and the all-important question of how Anthony defends clients that are guilty, among other things. And as always, be sure to check me out on social media. And check out some of Anthony's thoughts and some resources on topics we discussed by following the links in... Hello, Anthony. Welcome to Wrestling. Hi, Isaac. Thank you for having me here. No, thank you for coming on the for coming on Wrestling. It's This will be fun. I'm looking forward to this. Me too. All right, so let's start this job interview style. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So I'm an attorney. I've practiced law for 17 years, primarily in criminal law. I've done some prosecution, and mostly I've defended people who are accused of crimes and helped them with problems related to the criminal law. But it was a very close call for me and a difficult decision between law school and seminary because I really felt led to teach the Bible and to help people apply the Bible to their spiritual growth and development. On the other hand, I really became convinced that God had a vocation for me in the law, that he wanted me to be defending people, protecting those who couldn't stand up for themselves, and advocating for justice. Over the years as I've practiced law, I've really applied the Bible to how I practice law and how I care for people and spent a lot of time thinking about how scripture guides me in what I should be doing in society as a lawyer. And so I've done a lot of teaching in addition to that. And it's led me to get a master's degree in exegesis and theology. And I had a radio program on AM 980, the mission in the twin cities uh, started in July of 2021 called The Gospel Mind, which is trying to help people apply biblical thinking and listen to the scriptures and apply God's wisdom to all the different challenges of life so that we live our lives to the glory of God rather than sort of just living based upon whatever the world does to shape us. That's great to hear, but huh, becoming a lawyer, that is an interesting career choice. You know, I, you, you seem like an okay guy when we first met, but, but I don't know. <laughs> you know, it's funny because I'm, I'm so accustomed now to being a Christian lawyer and I've met so many lawyers throughout Christian legal society, both in Minnesota and across the nation who are godly people who love the Lord, who really listen to his word and do it, who really live their lives before the face of God and, and practice law as a devotion to their neighbors, that I, I'm just kind of used to that. And I forget that for a lot of people, when you hear Christian lawyer, you sort of, you know, 
have a little bit of curiosity or hesitation about, well, that seems unusual. And that's, you know, that's one of the reasons I had trouble when I made my decision to go to law school, because I didn't really have a vision for a faithful Christian lawyer. And it was learning the concept of having a vocation that is wholly devoted to God, where God is shaping and guiding why you do what you do and how you love your neighbors through that particular job or career or work that you're doing that really helped show me how you can practice law to the glory of God. Yeah, that's great to hear. It's funny to think that, you know, it was between that and seminary, and some people might think that's like having an angel and devil on your shoulder, but but no, all work is God's <laughs> work. That, that is very true. I mean, the Bible talks a lot about justice. It's, it, it's everywhere, whether it's, you know, we're the ones being justified by Christ, how often have you heard courtroom analogies being used to describe how we're justified before God? Whether we're looking exactly like all the time. Yeah. And think about the law. You know, that was very much about civil life and how God wanted things to look. The prophets talked spoke a lot against the people when when the rich were taking advantage of the poor, like like in Amos, for instance, that's a very justice-heavy book. And we see the same in the New Testament. It, it really is everywhere. And, and having, of course, a discussion on biblical justice, that really opens up a can of worms because there are a lot of terms and a lot of different ways the word justice is being used. And everyone just seems to have their opinion on on how it needs to be applied. Yeah, that's a good summary. You know, you have justice, the way that it relates to what I do as a lawyer, you think about justice in a courtroom, trying to defend somebody against criminal charges, trying to protect the innocent, or as a prosecutor to punish the guilty and restrain evil. You think about justice in terms of making sure that if somebody is injured and wronged, that in their civil lawsuit, they get justice by being compensated for somebody else's negligence or somebody else's deliberate wrongful actions. But that's really only one dimension um, or rather a narrow category of justice. And I think when people talk about what justice is or what justice requires, you have to be careful in how you use that language. We often use that carelessly and vaguely, and we don't actually think about where do we get our understanding of what justice really is, what it looks like, and what is expected of us as an individual or as a society. Go ahead. Yeah, I was just thinking you can, you can think about all sorts of examples of people who claim very legitimate authority for what they do and and claim that what they're doing is the right and the just thing to do when really they're not actually applying those words correctly right because so often you know i heard a sermon the other day that 
you know, I'm going to go, here's this example again. So my apologies if I'm exhausting you with, with the example of gender and sexuality, but it's like, if you don't affirm me, that's not loving or, or that's not just. Because we're all made in God's image, correct? So whenever you're trying to promote your idea, there needs to be there needs to be some kind of a grain of truth behind it. There needs to be some concept that that by our nature, because God's law is written on our heart, we know is a good thing. So we all know about the importance of love because God has written it on our hearts. So the solution to push your idea is not to eliminate the concept of love, but rather it's to redefine it, which is why there's such an argument these days over terms and and how they're used and why it's really important in a discussion to define your terms and why for instance in the book 1984 there was this there was this war over terms there was this newspeak because if you can if you can control the way people speak you control them like it says in James we put bits into horses mouths and and we control this animal that is way bigger than 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 a human but well we control horses by putting bits in their mouths yeah i agree words have a tremendous influence and especially concepts trying to claim the authority and the legitimacy of concepts you you think about how the fact that that even uh, pastors and teachers and professors over the last century and a half in the United States who don't really take the reality of God and the reality of his supernatural acts in history seriously and don't submit themselves to the Bible as their measure of truth, nonetheless have so often tried to use the Bible to justify what they're teaching and what they're doing and claim that the Bible is their authority. And what they really want is not God or God's design in creation. What they really want is not God's truth revealed in the Bible. They want to take the authority of the Bible and turn it to their cause, turn it to support what they're trying to do. And you see the same thing with science you see the same thing with education. You see the same thing with government. Everybody wants to take the authority and shape it to support their cause. When really the question we have to ask if we're going to live an honest life and if we're going to be, you know, <laughs> genuine in our relationship with God is what is really right and worthy? What is really true? What does God really desire and command? You know, the Bible makes it pretty simple in some places. What does the Lord require of you, O oh man, but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? Micah 6, 8. But of course, what God means there is do justice as I have defined it. Do what reflects my character. Do mercy that reflects who I am and walk humbly before me so that you are submitting all of your ways and everything you think and do to who I am. So, of course, 
it's great to talk in these terms, but to to throw these truths out there, but but it can be it can be vague. It can have multiple meanings. So, what are some ways that you what are some concrete ways that you have applied God's justice, whether to a case you're working or or otherwise, or maybe just the way you might think about a current hot button issue today? What is an example of justice? Yeah, that's great. Thank you, Isaac. So one of the things the Bible shows you about justice is that justice doesn't just include punishing the guilty. It also includes protecting the innocent. And in particular, it in includes a fundamental fairness about the process through which we decide disputes and through which we intervene when people are doing something in society. So in Old Testament Israel, for instance, God gave us this Mosaic law at Mount Sinai where he gave the people very specific commands for how they were supposed to decide disputes and how they were supposed to enforce punishment. And one of the most striking things about that law is that not only did God say, okay, if a person does this, you shall punish them this way, but he also said, you shall have a just process for how you make these decisions and decide who gets punished. Uh, for instance, uh, a really astonishing example is that a person shall not be put to death except on the testimony of two or three witnesses. One witness shall not suffice in any matter for which a person would be put to death. Even if that witness is extremely credible, you must have two or three witnesses. Well, what is that? That's a protection against people just trying to lie in order to undermine somebody else and in order to, you know, fulfill a grudge against them. The Bible likewise says, if a witness is found to have tried to bring a false charge against someone, you shall do to the witness as they tried to do to the other person. You shall punish them based on what they wanted the other person to be punished with. And again, that's a deterrent to people so they wouldn't bring false charges. But then another thing that you see in the Old Testament law is that you are not to favor people. You're not to show favoritism in how you decide matters of justice. You are not to favor the rich because they're rich. You're not to favor the poor because they're poor. You shall render a just judgment. And yet there's a special vigilance that God urges his people and commands his people to have that those who have power, who have influence and control would not take advantage of the weak and the oppressed, that they wouldn't oppress them and manipulate them. That's really great stuff to hear. And it's particularly amazing to me that, that God would make this law that a conviction for a crime must come by two or more witnesses. God just as easily could have said, because he's God, he's all-knowing, he sees everything. He just as easily, every time a crime occurred, he could have had a prophet come and reveal who did it. I mean, similar to what we see in the book of Joshua, when a man named Achan stole some of the treasure from Jer from. Yeah, from Jericho, 
that was meant to be cursed. And at that time, Joshua cast lots to determine the guilty party. But that's the exception, not the rule. And, and that really gives us really cool insight into who God is. Because he wants us to use to use our minds and he wants justice to be the just process to be an organic process. And it's almost like it's a reminder that that ultimately he alone is all knowing and and we're just creatures and limited in our insight. I just think that's something that's particularly cool. It is. It's fascinating how God includes us in his work, both in creation and in redemption. So from the very beginning in the garden, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, God made Adam to work the garden and to keep it. He puts Adam in the garden, and Adam is essentially, um, as many Bible scholars have said, a vice regent. He, he has become God's emissary on earth. He has been given this kingly authority to keep watch over the garden. And, and he does all these things that are participating in ordering the world and in ruling over the world. So he names the animals. He tends the ground. Um, he and the woman are going to have children that are going to multiply and fill the earth. God gives him dominion over all the animals. He clearly is in a role of leadership and authority. But then what, what happens? Adam and Eve listen to the serpent. The serpent causes them to doubt God, and they essentially rebel against their sovereign. They rebel against God's authority, and they therefore lose the right and the role that they had. They're cast out of the garden. God points cherubs with flaming swords to guard the way to the garden, and throughout this fallen humanity that we now live in, God nonetheless still appoints people to actually do good to their neighbors by administering society, by ruling over them benevolently, by doing justice, by protecting their rights. Uh, that's one of the roles the king of Israel was expected to have. Psalm 72, verse 1, you know, oh God, give the king your justice that the prayer there is that the king would be able to act with justice. And Proverbs 31, uh, King Lemuel's mother says, you know, it's not for kings to drink wine or to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget the rights of the poor. The king's got a responsibility. He has a responsibility to make sure the rights of the poor are not violated. And therefore he needs to be vigilant. He needs to be alert. He needs to be paying attention. God gives us that responsibility throughout creation, and it's pretty amazing that he lets fallen humans be part of his redemptive work of ordering and reordering the world. That is such an awesome thing. In fact, the greatest part of his redemptive work is not only appointing us, but sending his son to become one of us. <laughs> That's, that's, that's incredible. Yep. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Yeah. And that's, you know, there's a huge 
um, dimension of justice that is all about God dealing with sinners. Uh, justice is not just a concept of how we as people relate to other people and, and who protects each other or, you know, what rights each person has. It's, it's important to keep in mind that social justice or legal justice, each of these things are particular categories of justice. They're between individuals administered by government, by society. But most of the time that the Bible is looking at justice and acts of righteousness or righteousness reigning on the earth, it's actually looking to God as the hope both in his judgment on the world and his work of salvation. So in a number of cases, the scriptures are really focused on God enacting the work of righteousness. So you go back again to that article in the New Dictionary of Biblical Theology. It emphasizes that the biblical writers regularly attribute the reestablishment of righteousness to God alone. The Psalms, you see people appealing to God to effect justice on their behalf and to grant his righteousness. And ultimately, righteousness will cover the entire earth, but that's going to be God's work. So we, we're in this process where we are participating in God's work of redemption and restoration, but we are never going to have the decisive or the majority role in that. We're merely parts of what God is doing. We're instruments in his work. Hmm. Most importantly, obviously, as you said, the work of salvation of sinners. Hmm. True, because if we all receive justice, we'd all be in hell right now. But, but no, it's because right. God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's just, that's so awesome. Yeah, it's glorious and wonderful. And it's, that is one of the clearest examples in all of history, in all of creation, that God takes justice seriously. That sin will be punished. It must be punished. God does not treat sin with indifference. He's not casual about it. That the death of Christ on the cross is God's ultimate judgment on the evil of sin. It's the measure of how evil sin is, that it must be punished. Uh, that's something else that we often have trouble with, I think. That we, we think that every wrong that is done has to be corrected on earth. And, and we often will put that burden, that pressure on society and on individuals to correct every wrong that is done. But God himself will correct every wrong that is done. Either he'll punish it on the cross for all who believe in Christ and are justified by faith in him. Their sin has been punished. It did get punished. God really did address it. But they've been spared the punishment because Christ took it. For those who reject Christ and reject God and persist in doing evil, then they will suffer eternal punishment for their sin. As John Piper said, nobody ever gets away with anything. One way or another, wow. God addresses justice. Yeah, so whether it's, whether it's you know, by, 
by using you or for using me in the world of financial crimes for, for an eternity. And also, knowing that God is just, that's, what that's one thing that enables us to forgive others. It is to leave it to God. That's what to forgive really means. It's to say, justice is not in my hands, because you know what? I'm a sinner too. And Christ has shown me so much mercy that I will in turn show you mercy. And, and one way or another, the wrong will be avenged. So, in a way, this idea of the wrath of God, it's freeing. It, it inspires us to be more merciful and more loving. Because if there were no eternal justice, then why, why would I forgive you if, if you know what you've done might go unpunished, right? Yeah, that's a challenge for a lot of people with forgiveness, is they think it's it's letting the other person get away with it. They think it's it's almost like saying it doesn't really matter what you did to me. G.K. Chesterton has this beautiful line. He says, forgiveness means forgiving the unforgivable, or it is no virtue at all. Hmm. You know, if, wow. if you forgive something because you think it's not that big a deal, that's not really that significant. That That doesn't really demonstrate a lot of grace. When you forgive someone who has truly hurt you, who has truly betrayed or mistreated you, that shows the grace of God. That really demonstrates the Christ-like love. So I think this sets up a perfect opportunity for me to connect that logic of forgiveness and God's justice. Because one of my favorite passages of scripture that lays out how those relate to each other in society and in the way that we leave justice up to God, is Romans 12, 17 to 21, and then Romans 13, 1 to 7. Right, I mean, they lead right into each other. Uh, Romans 12 ends with verse 21, and then verse, you know, chapter 13 starts, and that whole section is connected, because Romans 12, 17 says, repay no one evil for evil but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. But here's the fascinating connection. That's, that's just what we've been talking about. You leave it to God to avenge evil. But then Romans 13 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. And then he says, If you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So, 
God says, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for he will repay. But then only a few verses later, God says that the authorities he has appointed are his avengers to carry out wrath on the wrongdoer. And at some point it hit me while I was practicing law that that is the mandate right there for having the administration of justice in society. That God has appointed rulers and authorities to restrain evil and to punish wrongdoers. So another one of the reasons that I cannot take matters into my own hands and why I shouldn't take revenge on people is that God is seeing to it, not just in the next life, but in this life. God has appointed order. He's appointed people with authority in order to punish evil. He's not going to let it go unpunished. Imperfectly in this life, through imperfect people and systems that are sometimes flawed and sometimes corrupted, he still does justice. He still addresses wrongdoing, and he still avenges the innocent. And perfectly in eternity, he will ensure that all of it is dealt with. Everything will be paid for. Now, you bring up Romans 13, and... And, of course, as Paul says in Philippians, the Philippians were both citizens of Philippi and perhaps citizens of the Roman Empire, but also citizens of heaven. And I know there are various different ways that we think about, you know, how involved Christians should be in politics and how you and I might think of our American citizenship in terms of our heavenly citizenship. So how exactly do you think of of our responsibility in earthly kingdoms and the church as a whole? Yeah, that's a great question. Part of what has really helped me make sense of what scripture tells us to do here is to think in terms of roles. God gives us certain roles in life, depending on who we are. And depending on what role you have, that helps you know what your responsibilities are before God on earth. So, for instance, Scripture makes clear that God will hold various people for accountable for doing justice on the earth. But whether you're accountable for doing justice in certain instances really depends on what role you have. If you're a ruler, if you're a king in the Old Testament, or a priest, or one of the judges of Israel, if you're you know, a sovereignly elected uh, president of a country, in our current day, you have a responsibility for making sure justice is done in your society. The government must do justice to the people under your rule. You must not oppress them or take advantage of them. You must not let other people in the government oppress them or take advantage of them. Likewise, you must protect them from other people in society who might oppress the innocent, the poor, or the defenseless. So a ruler is gonna have real strict accountability. But if I'm just a citizen, I don't have a role in the government, I don't have any authority on earth over other people, I'm not necessarily accountable for that justice. My, my responsibility might be limited to voting intelligently and trying to make sure that I elect leaders who are going to fulfill their role in leadership responsibly. And maybe I lobby them, I, I call their offices, I write uh, I participate in, you know, town hall forums when we can confront or address 
the government not doing what it should do regarding justice. Maybe we even go to the level of protests, but we have a different role. And this really became incredibly helpful for me as a lawyer, uh, because I realized that as a lawyer, I have a certain role in seeing that justice is done. But it gets even more specific than that. If I am the prosecuting attorney, my role is different than if I'm the defense attorney. And the system of justice that God has set up doesn't work if the prosecutor starts acting like the defense attorney or the defense attorney starts thinking that he should think like the prosecutor and do the prosecutor's job. And if you're a judge, your role is even different still. Hmm. Huh. That's, that's really a helpful way to think about it. We'll tell you one thing that really helped me with that. <laughs> Sorry. One thing that really helped me there was, you know, people will often ask you when they find out you're a Christian lawyer, how do you reconcile in your conscience defending guilty people and That's potentially getting them question. acquitted? <laughs> there it is. Yeah. It's one of the top questions I get asked. And, and certainly I have wrestled with it. And one of the things that really helped me was realizing my job before God, my role when I'm a defense attorney is not to be the prosecutor. It's not to be the judge. It's not to be the jury. God has appointed people for those roles. And if my client is really guilty and really needs to be punished and held accountable, then the prosecutor should do his or her job and the jury should do their job, and my client should get found guilty, right? But if I start thinking, well, I've got to do the prosecutor's job, I've got to judge my client in my heart, decide whether I think they're guilty, and then I've got to make sure they get punished, I've now stopped being the defense attorney. My client no longer has a defense attorney if I do that. Instead, I've started trying to do someone else's job, and God has already appointed people in the system to do those jobs. And so I realized the system doesn't work effectively unless you each do the role that God has given you and respect why that role is important. And the role of the defense attorney is awfully significant because if we assumed that society always got it right, that judges always were, you know, omniscient and knew what was right and wrong and had perfect wisdom and also perfect integrity to apply their judgments fairly in every case, if we assume that prosecutors never made mistakes, never got carried away, maybe we wouldn't need defense attorneys. But we all know that's not how things work in the real world. That there are plenty of defense attorneys who are sinners, who are fallen, but there are plenty of prosecutors who are like that too. Namely, all of them. Every one of us is a sinner. And so you need an advocate, you need a defense attorney to test the evidence to be someone's supporter and defender and to make sure that they're treated fairly in the criminal process. And that freed me up to really embrace that role and recognize that that role was a role that helped serve truth and helped serve justice. Hmm. That's awesome to hear because, yeah, the, the right to be defended in court, I mean, that's, that's as fundamental of a right as you have. 
But yeah, sometimes that must not be easy to, to leave everything to God like that. I, I know sometimes, even just in my own life, it's leaving things to God. There's just... I know for sure in my life, I've naturally resisted that. I've been guilty of it. Well, and I want to really emphasize... Um, since you teed that up so well, it's not an apathy or an indifference. When I describe my role as a defense attorney, I'm not indifferent to whether my client is guilty. I'm not apathetic about what happens or whether they face accountability. Uh, that would be dishonoring to God. That would just act like I didn't care about justice. Rather, what I'm doing as a defense attorney is I'm recognizing, okay, there's a moral dimension here where if I know you're guilty, I need to work with you on what that means for your soul. You need prayer. You need confession. You need repentance. You need Christ. And you need to address what you've done wrong. <clears throat> In some cases, that might even mean confessing and accepting responsibility for something, uh, actually pleading guilty to a crime. But in other cases... You know, you do have cases where people are prosecuted uh, overzealously for something more serious than what they really did. Uh, or cases where somebody did something foolish, but now they're being prosecuted for something different they didn't do. And so I feel like as a defense attorney, I've got a double responsibility, or maybe a better way to put it, I've got full responsibility for ministering to my client and for being a sort of shepherd to them that I need to know what's going on in their soul and their heart and what really happened. And I need to help them confront that with God to really address that honestly before God and seek repentance and restoration. But I also need to deal with the legal system and make sure my clients treated fairly in the legal system. And I can do both of those things without just telling my client, hey, you just have to go in there and let the legal system do whatever it wants to you. Like I can defend them in the legal system and make sure their rights are vindicated, but I can still make sure that they address whether they've done something wrong and that they show some accountability for it. Yeah, that's good. Go ahead. Were you going to say something? Okay. I'll just give you a phrase. Constructive consequences is the best way that I've found to sum up what I do. That very rarely as a defense attorney is it an all or nothing thing where I'm just trying to win a trial and either the person goes completely free with no consequences or they're convicted and the state does what the state thinks is proper. Most of the time what I'm doing with people is they're taking some responsibility for what they've done through some sort of plea agreement, but we're helping shape the outcome through negotiation so that the consequences they face are constructive. Like if they've taken money from somebody wrongly or caused injuries, they'll pay for that. But they won't lose their job by going to jail for say nine months because that would actually be counterproductive, both for their family and for the person they've wronged. And so often what you're trying to do is you're trying to find what is a good way to restore both the person accused of the crime and the community. What is a good, what, you know, people use the phrase restorative justice. And that's part of what restorative justice is about is saying, 
we're not just trying to lock up the people that have made mistakes and, and narrow down the people in society to the people we think are just good. We are looking at the fact that everybody is part of society. Everybody's part of the community. And we're trying to restore what's gone wrong and been broken when someone breaks the law. We're trying to restore the trust in the community and restore the person who did wrong. It's a great way to think about it. Because so often, well, like you said earlier, some people think of justice very narrowly. They tend to think that it's all about punishing evil and getting rid of the riffraff, if you will. But that also centers on a biblical right. truth that that we're all sinners. You know, you can think of the worst person imaginable, and and it's still true, there but for the grace of God go I. So I think just... Right, exactly. That's key in understanding justice is humility, is, is that proper knowledge of yourself, just knowing that you've been justified by God alone. And in fact... Even qualities you have that are that are virtuous qualities, that is because of God's grace in your life. So I, I just yes, think that, exactly. And and I was going to say we would be a much more just society if if we just took a moment and realized, okay, how would I have done in that situation? For example. A lot of times there have been a lot of wrongful convictions that have happened because someone has confessed to a crime under much duress. And if everyone just took a moment, because most people, they'd be like, oh, I never confessed to something I didn't do. Really? What if we locked you in a room, you had had a detective who is professionally trained in interrogation, if, if you had a detective going at you for hours, no sleep, possibly no food, you'd do just about anything to get out of there. And you'd probably think, oh, there's no way this would, this would pass in court. But, but you know, if people think, well, I would have done way better than this person or or they might just decide there's just something about this person that they don't like or they shouldn't have gotten themselves in that situation but instead just take a moment to reflect and to and to recognize how frail and vulnerable we all are that none of us is invincible none of us is is immune from ending up in a bad situation. Now, of course, we're not to fall into the opposite pit and just excuse everyone's actions, but we would be a much more just and much more loving society if if everyone were more humble. Yes, that's very well said. And I think people people forget that everybody needs accountability. People need to hold those who break the law accountable. People need to hold those who enforce the law accountable. People need to hold defense attorneys and prosecutors accountable. They need to hold judges accountable. All of our government officials need to be held accountable. 
Like we all require correction and discipline. And I love the fact that you you emphasized there but for the grace of God go I. Like we all are in need of mercy. I think people have a negative reaction to that sometimes because they think it's it's a free pass on everything. Like it's just a get out of jail free card. And and another thing that has really helped me think right. Like sometimes it just okay, well, all my sins are forgiven, so okay, we just carry on. But grace is life-changing and life-transforming, not only in the fact that it frees us from the guilt and the shame of sin and from impending judgment. We don't have to live in fear that we're enemies of God and we're going to face judgment anymore because we now have peace with God, as Romans 5.1 says so beautifully. But grace also transforms us and actually disciplines us. Uh, this book called The Discipline of Grace by Jerry Bridges is one of the most powerful things I've ever read about this. And he bases the concept in that book on Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, which says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. And Bridges points out that the grace of God, which we often think of as just our freedom from sin, the free gift of salvation, that the grace of God is actually training us. It's changing us. The grace of God is disciplining us to become more holy, more Christ-like. And so that's one of the ways that I've developed this phrase, constructive consequences, to describe the emphasis of what I try to do as a defense attorney, is that we are trying to help discipline people towards what is good. Hebrews chapter 12 is another place. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 to 11, just emphasize this very same thing, that it's talking about how fathers have disciplined us for our good. And God disciplines us like a father. He disciplines those he loves. So don't reject his discipline. Because you get down to verses 10 and 11, and they say, for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And what I've come to realize over the years is that so many people think of punishment as just essentially paying somebody back for what they did. But most of the time in the Bible, when God deals with his people, his punishment is discipline. It is meant to correct them. It's meant to restore them. It's meant to bring them back to repentance and to bring them to holiness. And so even the punishment function of the law should be used to correct and restore. For sure. I mean, and, and we're all in this process of of being formed by God into, into the people he's calling us to be. 
it's a lifelong journey, that's for sure. Yeah, and you know, it's a journey where God has different priorities for what's going on in our lives at different points. That's one of the things I think when you see people who get really passionate about a particular injustice, uh, they they make correcting that this overriding ambition or focus. And, and they will essentially try and overcome anything that seems to them like an obstacle to that justice. They will try and do anything they can to achieve justice. And we forget that there are multiple priorities. There are multiple good things, multiple vital and necessary components of a ordered society that is healthy and flourishing that provides stability and provides good for its people. And if you kind of just knock everything down in your zeal to get to one goal, you can end up upsetting things and creating a greater injustice. So GK Chesterton has this wonderful illustration of a fence. And he says, you know, if you come to a fence in the road and you want to remove the fence, if you do not know why the fence was put there, I will certainly not let you remove it. Now, if you go away and find out why the fence was put there and you have a good reason why the fence no longer is needed and should be removed, then I may let you remove it. But if you don't know why the fence wasn't there in the first place, you shouldn't be pulling it down without knowing why. And I think that's so often what happens when people get passionate about a certain injustice is they are so zealous to try to correct it that they're essentially willing to open up a whole bunch of uncertain and unknown consequences because they're trying so hard to shape everything and to, to push everything towards getting this injustice corrected. We have to remember that there's got to be a balance in how we work together as citizens in a society and in an order that keeps us from essentially running over each other. For sure. All right. Well, uh, unless you have any any more thoughts, thanks again for coming by. It's been it's been great to have you. This has been this has been a great discussion. Yeah, I've really enjoyed this, Isaac. Thank you so much for this opportunity. I think my parting thought would be, if you want to know what justice is, read the book of Proverbs and, and meditate on Proverbs and meditate on all of Scripture. Because Proverbs says, not only will you gain wisdom by reflecting on what's in there and listening to this teaching, but you will also know justice and righteousness and equity in every good way. So scripture is meant to make you wise so you can honor God and obey his commands, including the command to do justice. Amen. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All right. Yep. Amen. Soli Deo Gloria.